This is the Baywatch Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by special guest Alonzo Felder, author of Discovering ASJ Allen. Over the course of his 37-year formal career as an IT analyst at Duke University, Alonzo became an expert in a number of research methods and has done extensive work on his own family history. In retirement, his work includes promoting the importance of family history and honoring ancestors. Alonzo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And if you have anything else, I mean, this whole conversation is kind of about your family and your legacy. And so I think this whole conversation will be about that. But if there's any other details you just want to immediately add to what I said, um, feel free to share a little bit more about your um, maybe immediate family. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, that uh, intro was was wonderful, Brent. Uh, my immediate family, I'm living here in Durham, North Carolina. I've... Um, been married to my wife Francine for over forty years, and uh, which is a real testament to her. Um, <laughs> and we have two adult children, um, just uh, up the number of grandchildren. I now have five grandchildren. So if you look in the front of the uh, book, you'll see I have it dedicated to my three grandsons. Um, going to have to do something about that because now I have two granddaughters, both born on the same day, just a couple weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, absolutely. That's those are beautiful little tidbits that become a part of our story. Absolutely. Um, I got this email from Alonzo. I don't know how it was a while ago. And um, one of those emails saying, hey, uh, I have this book. I didn't know if you would be interested in reading. His email was very aware. You know, I know you get sent a lot of books and I do. And every time I get on here doing these interviews, I complain about it. And here I am again. And yet... Alonzo had this book about what it was like to, um, well, the title Discovering A.S.J. Allen, to discover um, those that had come before you, your mm-hmm. your predecessors. I don't know if ancestors feels like too much of antiquity uh, buried into that, but those that have come before you and experiences as black community in reconstruct. We'll talk a little bit more about what this means, but mm-hmm. reconstructionist era. And I thought, this is this is the kind of stuff I'm trying to read more of. This is the kind of stuff I'm trying to surround my... These are the kinds of people and the kinds of voices that I'm wanting to... They're not present enough in my life. And so I said, yes, I actually do want to read your book and send me a copy. And then the book came in the mail and it was big. <laughs> <laughs> it was... How many pages here? It was... 300 of content, another hundred of appendix and everything else. And, yeah. and, uh, but man, it was, it was just, uh, a ton of fun to fun. Doesn't feel like the right, it was good. It was a good read on so many levels. I did not expect, I was expecting some things. I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting others, but let me ask you this, uh, Alonzo, how did you, how'd you know about me? I met you via email. How right. did you get to know Bema or, Brent or I, or what's your connection there that that prompted you to send that email? Well, for a number of years, I 
led or co-led a grief support group at my local congregation uh, for people who had experienced or were experiencing uh, loss uh, due to death in the primarily death in their in their families. And I had this one participant in a grief uh, support group that I was delivering. She was a, a woman I've literally known her most of her life. I knew her parents. And she was in class because she was preparing for the upcoming death of her father. And that was a complex relationship. There was just a whole bunch of stuff going on all at the same time. But she was going through this grief process with such courage and strength. And she, when she would make comments in the class, everybody would just stop and listen. And she and I would end up talking afterwards, sometimes for an hour or more after the class was over. And I could tell that the text was doing something inside of her, mm. that she was really doing a great job in dealing with um, this upcoming death, even though it was so uh, incredibly difficult. And, you know, if you've ever been in, in a, a grief kind of situation, counseling situation, a lot of people want to throw out platitudes of, oh, you know, he'll be in a better mm. place. And the Bible says mm. that he's going to blah, blah, blah. And, and none of that was coming out of her, but she was doing what I have come to learn now is text to context. Let's mm. look at what was going on and why this was said and, and why it means so much. Mm. And I asked her, uh, I, in, as we were talk, I would say, well, tell me, what are you, what are you doing? What kind of spiritual disciplines do you have? What are you learning? And she started talking about this guy, Marty Solomon, in this Bema Discipleship <laughs> podcast that she was learning just an incredible amount uh, from. So I, I actually remember one specific night, class ended, it was about nine o'clock, I had an hour's drive to get home, got home, had dinner, kissed my wife, locked myself up in my office, and I listened to the first couple of episodes, and I was just blown away. I was hooked from the very beginning. And after that, my wife and I would start setting aside an hour after dinner every evening, and we would just listen to an episode. After the episode was over, Brent would come on and say, well, you know, go ahead and, and meet with your discussion group and, you know, Mm -hmm. put your questions and stuff out there and and we'd smile and we'd look at each other and go hey there discussion group and we would talk <laughs> yeah and it's a wonder that we got any sleep or any rest but we were so so incredibly full to be able to see the scriptures in a new light and and to understand them so that's that's how i met you <laughs> uh, that is really beautiful to hear that and yeah, just appreciate that story a bunch, and that means a lot. But absolutely. Brent, what do you got? Uh, well, maybe you can uh, get us started discussing your book and just kind of give us um, a little bit of an overview, a synopsis, whatever. I, I think, you know, the sure. text to context thing that you were just talking about is a theme that I saw um, come Ooh, up in your book yeah. in many places. Yep. So, Oh, absolutely. Well, give the, us a little bit of an overview. So the, the one thing that I, I sort of like to start with is this idea of looking at the text and being 
familiar with it, being obedient to it, being submissive to it, and you don't have to read very many pages into the Word before you get to these 10 words in this whole concept of honor your father and mother. And Mm. we know it from our Judeo-Christian background as, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, but the fact is, 23 of the world's major religions have a similar or even identical uh, text that it is important to honor the people who created you. It's important to give honor and reverence to uh, your mother and father. Well, a part of me wanting to do that is you can't, I, I, I came to the conclusion, you can't honor what you don't know. Hmm. So I knew so very little about who made me and where I came from. I knew the immediate, you know, mom and dad kind of situation, but I didn't know a whole lot before that. And it sort of hit a zero state for me when my mom passed away. I remember we had the funeral, everything was over with with her, dealing with her passing, and I remember walking into the living room, looking at my wife and my two kids, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that those two children sitting on the floor were my legacy. Mm. I'm an only child, my mom was an only child, so there's not like, you know, cousins and uncles and aunts and other kinfolk around. Um it was me and these two little creatures on the floor that shared my DNA. And I just didn't know what to give them in terms of family story. So I uh, was sort of bemoaning this to a, a friend of mine. And he said, well, what can you do about it? And I said, well, you know, I there's a cemetery down in Florida, uh, Gainesville, Florida, Alachua where I don't care where we end up in the world, it seems like everybody goes back to this one cemetery for burials. I have spent my entire life going to funerals and, you know, seeing people put into the ground there in Gainesville. I said, I think I want to walk among the tombstones. I want to go back and and kind of get to know my people. And he looked at me and said, okay, when do you want to go? And it was road trip on uh, at that moment. And after going down there and sort of roaming around, I did a lot of discovery there, came back home and started looking up some of the names. One of those names was A.S.J. Allen. I'm named after him. He's Albert Sidney James Allen. My middle name is Albert. Um, and I always knew that it was my grandmother's daddy that uh, I'd been named after. Had a picture of him, but I didn't know anything about him because my family would never talk about him. All we knew, or at least all I knew, is that sometime, long time ago, in the Jim Crow South, he was murdered by a white guy. And that was it. So I started doing some Google searches and other things. And that's when I started to make this discovery of this bigger than life African-American preacher, teacher, farmer uh, there in the Alachua County area who did so much to build community, was killed by the neighbor over a border dispute. And you would think that would be the end of it. You know, um, 
sad to, to say, but true. In 1904, if you killed a black guy and you're white, it's sort of akin to running over a squirrel right now. You may stop or you may not. It's justifiable homicide. You just keep going. Well, that didn't happen with my great-grandfather. And I Hmm. learned that people showed up, like 800 people plus showed up to attend his funeral. After uh, that, The community comes together, raises funds, and they hire two attorneys to take the shooter to court. And I'm thinking, okay, I know a little bit about history. Uh, There's this place called Rosewood. There's Tulsa. There's there's all these places in American history that if black people don't like the way things are going and they say something about it, then they burn your town down. You you lose your life. You know, bad things happen when you push up against that establishment. What was it about my grandfather that allowed hmm. such agency in the community around him? And I started reading about the things he'd done in life, and I was absolutely blown away. So that's that's what started this journey. I had no idea I was writing a book. Um, hmm. I was just enamored over this man that I was named after. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned you started with this, you know, honor your father and mother mm-hmm. conversation. But even beyond that, like it strikes me that you you don't even have to get that far. You're only a couple pages into your Bible before you run into these things we call genealogies. and yes. this. And what is this but a record and a large part of your book is um, it, it, it's it's honoring your predecessors and honoring ASJ Allen mm-hmm. through record keeping, through the physical work of genealogy. And I loved that connection as well. What was that process? Like, so you've talked about what was going like, what was it like inside of you? I imagine, I think you speak to this towards the end of the book, but like there had to have been a whole mixture and a range of not just feelings and emotions, but as you, I mean, it's one thing to discover something new. It's one thing to find a topic and almost like a hobby dig into or study or research. It's gotta be something else when it's so intimately connected to your identity, your namesake. Mm-hmm. What was that process like internally for you? It it was a transformative process. Um, one of the the things that I later discovered in just looking at the history is that family stories, cultural stories have the ability to transform and to change you because when you when you read history and you see yourself, you see your people in that story, then it's it's your story. Then it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's intimate. Mm-hmm. Then it's about mm-hmm. who we were and where we were and what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens as a result of, of making that connection is you have outcomes that are really desirable. So I, I, I go back to, to the way that the command is structured. Honor your father and mother. Why? so that Mm. it Mm. may be well with you. Well, Mm. this whole idea of wellness opened Mm. up on on my horizon as I was doing this research because 
I personally started experiencing, as we say, a pep in your step. Um, I, I started feeling really good about myself. I come from people. I have, I, there's some dignity about the people who preceded me. Um, and when I looked into the science, I see the, um, you know, there's a couple of folks I mentioned in the book, um, um, Marshall, Dukes, Robin Fivish down at Emory uh, University in the Family Narratives Lab, looking at the Do You Know scale in essentially finding that children, adolescents especially, who know the story, know the what it happened to their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents, these kids perform so much better in academics, so much better in life, you know, less incidences of depression, of anxiety. Um, they're less likely to be gang members and to have criminal activity in their, in their lives. There's so much in terms of positive outcomes of wellness that comes together when you actually know who your people are. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that you know, firsthand, it was just incredible that as I was researching my own family, there was a sense of of pride and dignity that I started to feel about myself. And, oh, man, I'm I, I started channeling my grandmother, you know, with my children. It's like, hey, tuck your shirt in. Stand up straight. You know, mm-hmm. you got people. You're you're not just <laughs> run of the bill everyday humans. You know, you're special. And and you right. really start feeling that, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know if that answered. <laughs> that might have been a ramble. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That was great. Um, so I would imagine, as you set out, you weren't thinking from the very beginning that you were going to write a book about this. Oh no. So what was your what was your evolution of thought there? Like, did you did you get all this research and then you looked at it and you're like, well, this would be helpful. Maybe I should publish a book. Or did you get to the point where you're like, you know, I don't feel like I have it all together yet, but I feel like more people should be doing this kind of work and I want to turn this into something that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Like what, what was the process that got you to the point where you're like, I need, I need to do something that I can publish and provide as a resource to others. Oh, guys, this this was a classic case of a beggar finding food. Hmm. I... I could not believe what was transforming and happening in my own life. And quite honestly, I always thought of myself as a pretty normal, happy childhood, great, you know, friends and family. I didn't see myself from a victim mentality. I didn't see myself as as lacking. And I thought, if I... I can start feeling this way as a result of what I'm learning. What would this do to other people? They don't know what they're missing. And that's, that's really why I decided to, to go the book route is I, there was no way I could contain this and not share it. Oh, gosh, I love that. Throughout the book, you talked about this scale you mentioned just a moment ago, this DYK mm-hmm. scale, the do you know scale. And there's was all these questions. Do you know stories from your parents' childhood? Do you know this about where you're, you know, where, the house that your parents lived in? Do Just all these questions that are a part of this. And it's, these aren't just like made, like this is from an actual scale mm-hmm. that you referenced from these two names down at Emory University. And 
I just found that whole thing so moving because two things happened. A, I really appreciate the fact that for a large majority of those questions, I did know mm-hmm. a lot of those things about my own life. And I, I, and I was re- able to appreciate the impact that that had had, that had, had on my own emotional uh, just mental well-being, my own psychological development, all the things. But it wasn't that long ago. Um, our organization was using Lisa Sharon Harper's Very Good Gospel, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, a, a racial justice training boot camp. And we had gone through that. And I had had our, like, I had had our kids sit through some of the videos in that boot camp. Uh, I have some adolescent children. And one of the conversations that we talked the most about that we had never considered was if you come from uh, a, a black community, you you don't have it's easy for me to jump on and get a genealogy. It's easy for mm-hmm. me to trace down. But this DYK scale is not a given. Right. And I, all of a sudden I had this deep appreciation for, oh, goodness, I was able to appreciate something I didn't even know I was benefiting Mm -hmm. from. Is that a part of why you wrote this book? Is that a part of this spiritual food that you talk about? Like you wanted others to realize the value in this isn't just about facts and data, Mm -mm. but this, there is something, is that part of what you were doing as you wrote this book? Absolutely. Because you're, you're right. It's not about facts and data only. It's about the story. Um, I, I like to sometimes refer to myself as a family historian or a family history enthusiast. I, I almost cringe, um, when people refer to me as a genealogist, because so many times people use that word and it's just about the facts. And it's great to know if you're descendant from Charlemagne or whatever, you know, to know the the facts or even to know the DNA. But what really makes this come alive for me is do you know the stories? Do you know the the context of the facts? Do you know how your folks met? Do you know where they lived? Do you know why they happened to move to that city so that you were born there? Because those are the things that are important. That's what what makes the stories pop is when you can know those things. And and you mentioned uh, there earlier, Marty, for a lot of people of color, those things aren't a given. Right. They they aren't there because of a number of factors. You know, one of the things I, I have to always keep in mind is I'm an old guy now. Uh, I'm in, in my 60s. So I literally have memories of sitting with my cousins on the farm, on the front porch, shelling peas, shucking corn, and mm. listening to my grandmother and her sisters tell stories. Well, wake up. It's 2022. Nobody's sitting on a front porch shucking, you know, corn anymore and and telling stories. Grandma lives in a condo, not on, you know, a farm somewhere. So we we're in a different society. We're in a different context. And a lot of kids, they may not know their grandparents or due to cultural and and race-based sometimes uh, situations, your grandparents may be just slightly older than your parents. 
Right. So we're not talking about someone who's relating a 20 or 30 year prior history, um, but maybe, you know, someone who is more of a contemporary and they just don't have the stories to tell you. So the, the idea of, you know, being able to look to your family as a primary source and say, where did I come from? What were my people like? In some communities, you have to go a lot further than just mom and dad and maybe even grandma. So that's why I wanted to to make this book somewhat of a resource and a guide tool so that you can go further in being able to find out um, a couple of generations back. I always like to tell people, know the last 100 years. You know, that's not really that long. Know that much. Yeah. It made me even think about the way I tell my own story to my own children. Like, I think I get so worried sometimes about telling my story on Instagram or YouTube. Because when I think about my parents, I know know the story of how they started dating. They're next door neighbors. Mm -hmm. My dad was actually dating my aunt. She wasn't there one night and stood him up and my, and my mom was in there and my dad started taking, like, I know that story. I know that my dad you know, didn't really like school. The only class he liked was woodshop and he raced cars and got in trouble. Like, and I'm not like any of those things. And yet knowing that story mm-hmm. is somehow deeply a part of me. Absolutely. And, and so I, and now I'm going, man, do I, do I actually share my own stories with my own kids? It was just such a gift to see that that through through your book and and I I absolutely love that. Yeah, I was I was really struck by this scale as well. I I wrote down every single question. <laughs> and I'm sure there's there's an easy way easier way to find this list, but you can go I to my website. Down, um... Oh, th- there you go. <laughs> well, I wrote them all down because um especially as you were talking about like that situation where, you know, you don't have the the time just the the raw like okay, we've got 2 hours worth of um, slicing and dicing and other things to do. And we're just going to have these conversations that naturally come up. Like we just don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I I told my wife, I was like, look, I'm not, I don't think we should or can even change what our parents are doing with their lives. But if we can intentionally create some spaces to have these conversations, um, I think it's really important for our boys. And, you know, I, I think, hopefully I can take these questions and I, and I think same for me, I do know most of the answers. Um, but there are some that I don't know and I, I would rather capture them more intentionally now while they're available. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, this, that whole conversation really, um, kind of convicted me about, uh, the intentionality that I have with my own family. You know, we, we have the, the text telling us that we ought to be asking questions and telling stories as we walk along the way, when we sit, when we stand, you know, um, the, the instruction from, from, from the, the word is that we need to be engaged in story as we go about life. And if life doesn't make that real easy and, and opportune for you, I love what you're saying there, Brent, make it happen. Um, 
you know, somebody's going to have to do the dishes, grab a child, grab a grandchild, and we're going to get in there and we're going to wash up the dishes. And by the way, you're going to have to listen to me tell some stories again <laughs> about yes. when I was in high school or when I was in elementary school. Uh, I, I love boring my children to death with these things. But what's fun is I eventually got to a point where I could eavesdrop on my children and they're telling my stories. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's when you feel like, okay, I did a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to that idea of text to context, mm-hmm. um, this, this book is, uh, or ASJ story at least is, um, kind of set in the reconstruction era mm-hmm. in Florida and help the people out who are like me and who thought, <laughs> you know, as I was going through school, like, Oh, history is boring. I don't care about this. Let me just get to my math class. I know the answer. It's all easy to figure out. Um, And I just didn't pay attention (laughs) to this stuff. So maybe some of us need a refresher on what the Reconstruction era is. And, um, you know, that that idea of like getting into the minds of the people of the time and trying to sort out the details and being able to read those news reports and say like, okay, well, they said this. And to me, that means something, Mm -hmm. but what did it mean to them? And um, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Sure. Gladly. So the Brent, as you remember, the American civil war took place from 1861 to 1865. You remember that? Um. I mean, barely, barely. That's, that's probably the only thing I could tell you really. So the the Civil War breaks out and it goes on for for that stretch of time and I think most of us get a a introduction uh at at least to the Civil War as we're going through school but uh I find it interesting that so many people ask the same question of wait a minute reconstruction what's that so there was this thing called the Compromise of 1877 uh, that happened. And after the Civil War, there was this period where the United States government said, mm, we messed up and we need to redress the political, social, economic legacies of slavery because we've done something and we've really dirtied our hands here and and we need to do something about that. So during this period of time, we get three amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. And these freedoms are being granted to newly freed enslaved people. They're called freedmen. So you may have heard of the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, the United States government goes ahead and says, listen, we, we really messed up here and we've got to fix this because we've had this period of time where we've not treated these people like people. We have not given them proper education. We have not given them proper housing. We've not given them tools. And, and when I say tools, I always, um, in my brain, I go back to the biblical narrative of when the Jewish uh, people were freed from Egypt. What happens as they are getting out of that situation? Well, we read that they are loaded down with Egyptian wealth. (laughs) They are going into the desert with stuff, Mm -hmm. and they're going to a 
physical promised land to a place. So it's one thing to talk about, I'm, you're free. Just go do whatever you want to. You're free. You need tools in order to truly be free. Mm-hmm. You need to have some sort of economic, social, um, land, physical um, tools at your disposal if you're really going to live a free life. And that's what uh, the the country seems to have had on straight at least for a little while. And during this Reconstruction period, you see black men, women were not allowed to vote uh, still uh, for, for a lot of, uh, of this period, but you see black um, people voting. You have parts of the country where the black population outnumbers the white population. So what happens when you end up taking that uh, to the polls? You have hundreds of black elected officials all over the country. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, you're in this situation where you see people who are eloquent, people who are educated, people who are um, full of agency for their people and wanting to do things better, to build back and to do things differently. Um, you, you have your um, Joshua Walls, your um, Frederick Douglass, your, you know, people who we look at as, oh, exceptional in our history books, but these people, yes, they were exceptional, but they also were sort of a product of their environment. This is what mm. happens. This is what had happened. And you, you start seeing blacks really coming in and being integrated into society. And it looked like everything was just going to be hunky-dory and life was going to go on. The army was uh, behind all of this. So you had the, the might of the, the federal government, the, U, the, the U.S. Uh, military. The Freedmen's Bureau had formed and they were um, opening schools. They were opening banks. They, they were giving people the tools of finance, of education, offering loans um, to be able to make and build a new society uh, here in America. But you probably can figure out that didn't last very long because whites who had used to, who had been in power and were used to being in power were looking at this whole situation of reconstruction and going, wait a minute, I'm going to live in a country where the laws are made by people that I used to own. Mm where the people who I used to whip are going to be the people that are writing the laws that I need to obey. And, you know, then you have the rise of the Klan. Then you have the, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of Southern societies form that say, oh, this can't happen. We need to go back. And that's when you start getting uh, black codes, Jim Crow laws, and things like this coming up. But Mm -hmm. that there was a time before, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. after slavery and before black codes and Jim Crow, where society was actually trying to level itself out here in America. Mm 
Very good to uh, be reminded of that. Or even, you know, I never even had heard the term Reconstruction Era. Um, Mm -hmm. It was very helpful for me to have some handles for that. Another thing I appreciated as you wrote this book um, was your commitment to honesty, particularly about the story of A.S.J. Allen, what you could know, what you couldn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, You acknowledged, like, obviously I have biases and obviously, but ultimately I don't know this or I don't know that. And you were just you were very honest about you did not come like the book was very um, like there's a whole other part of this book. It's about. uh, it just it was very accessible. It came off as not that you had some massive axe to grind, even though the story would warrant such a posture. And and I'd only read your book. It wasn't until today I've even heard your voice alone. So this is the first time we've actually been able to interact in person. But you, even today in your conversation, like uh, it's the your your voice, your posture, the book, it, it comes off as trustworthy. Um, accessible? Has the book found a reach um, maybe uh, that's been helpful to those outside just your immediate, like, like has the book gone to places that maybe has surprised you or it have has. you heard feedback in that, that you find just so encouraging? So right after the book uh, came out, I was um, first, I, it, the book was published by the Florida historical society press in uh, this past summer, the Florida Historical Society um, had their annual meeting. I was invited to come and be a part of a couple of panels and, and give a, a presentation uh, there. I had no idea what to expect, Marty. So yeah. I, yeah. I'm an IT guy. Okay, I am. <laughs> I've worked in the medical center and in the university as the behind the scenes. I will make sure your computer is doing what it needs to do, and your your slides are are coming up on cue. Uh, that's <laughs> that's kind of who I am, and I found myself in Gainesville, Florida in the middle of two major historical society conventions, both were held at the same time. And there's a, I remember walking into the, the conference room where I was supposed to present and there was, <laughs> there was my counterpart. There was a guy hooking up the computer and testing the mics and mm. doing all this mm. stuff. And so I, did what I always do. I ran over next to him and said, Hey, what are you doing? And struck up a conversation. And I think we were probably like the only two non PhDs, you know, sure. within a 500 mile <laughs> radius uh, yeah. of, in a university town. And, and, and we're just sort of talking and he's like, yeah, what are you going to do? And it's like, well, I'm going to talk to all these historians who know far more than me about my grandfather. And he goes, ah, you'll do great. And, I give my, 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 we have our panel discussion. I do my thing and I'm sitting at the author's table out um, in the hallway when it's all over. And it was the most incredible thing. I had these, I think the most memorable were these tiny little old white elderly women. They bring their little walkers up to the table and this one woman goes, I am so glad you wrote this story. I want a couple of these books because I want my grandchildren to know. Mm. And I was blown away mm. because I didn't expect that. 
I just, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know who would write or, or who would read. I didn't know what yeah. kind of responses. If I was in a hotbed of Confederacy that there was just going to tell me right. to, you know, pack all these books up and get out of here. I didn't know what to expect. But what I found were people passionate about history, in this case, Florida history, who mm-hmm. were buying up my books to give them to their children and grandchildren Mm -hmm. because they felt like the story had been hidden for way too long. And Mm -hmm. that, that was, you know, very unexpected. The other similarly unexpected thing that's happened is I've had phone calls and letters from folks who have told me, you are channeling my family. My family also doesn't talk about this stuff. There's trauma in my history and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And even though it happened a hundred years ago, um, nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to bring it up, but now we can, because now we have a guide for, mm-hmm. for talking about it. So that's, that's been really, you know, good for me to, to see that kind of, of reach, um, I, I just did a, a talk last month at a little church uh, group here in, in Durham who they honed in on one particular chapter, one part of a chapter in the book on generational trauma. And what do you do when you have an ancestor who's been hurt and you find that you're, you're experiencing some of these same reactions and symptoms but you weren't even there, but you're having right. to deal with that right. hurt. And they wanted me to talk about the trauma in, and afterwards I thought it was going to be like an hour, you know, Alonzo gets up and talks for an hour and sits down, goes, signs books and goes home. At the end of it all, this woman in the back of the room goes, well, wait a minute, we can't go now. Get, isn't there going to be a Q and a, and we were there for another hour. Uh, People yes. want to know people want <laughs> yeah. to be able to get this stuff out. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been the result of of this book so far. I I, I don't know where it's all going to end, but um, it's been great. Yeah, it's great. It's good to hear. Yeah, uh, uh, you know the the story itself of ASJ Allen uh, is a really compelling story. Uh, but you you have a huge portion of the book that's dedicated to the process of finding this information, the investigation, yes. the discovery, um, and like if you had asked me like. Hey, hey, Brent, do you know how to use Google? Do you know how to use the search operators and all this stuff? And I'm like, oh yeah, I got that stuff. But, but you, you walked through all the different things and I learned several really cool tricks. Um, so even, even a total nerd like myself has something to, to learn from this, I think. And just the, the, um, just laying out the wide variety of things that are even out there. Um, mm-hmm. some of which I was aware of, but there's so, so much like the, the, variety of, um, marriage records. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so many different things. Um, and so I think it's just a really good resource for anyone who's doing investigation into their own heritage. Um, how did you, I mean, obviously you're an IT guy, so this is kind of like, you know, it is your day job, I guess, but, <laughs> but was, was this, was it fun? Was it exciting? Um, you, you talked about brick walls, like, Maybe maybe share a couple of moments where you hit a brick wall and you were frustrated. I mean, you were, you were doing this yeah. for decades. So like, oh, yeah. 
Um, talk, talk about the work of the investigation and discovery. So the one thing that I like to, to think, to talk about um, in some of my presentations is if you decide to take up this mantle of family history research, a couple things you should know. Do not believe what you see on television. This is not easy. You will not do this in a half an hour and end up with a book of life and just walk away yeah. and say, oh, I've done it. It's all that was great. It's it's all <laughs> behind me now. Um, this thing will take over your life. And I, I mean that in the most literal sense. There have been plenty of nights that three, four o'clock in the morning, my wife gets out of bed, comes across the hall to my office and goes, are you coming to bed? Um, mm -hmm. Because I have been here since, you know, five o'clock when I got home. Um, it is, it, do I enjoy it? Ah, oh, it's thrilling. Um, maybe I'm in, I went into IT because I'm a puzzle solver. I love puzzles. I love a mystery. I love, you know, looking for answers to, to problems. And if you want to find problems, just think about your family. Um, there are so many problems, um, in family history to be resolved, to be solved. And there are things that you, <clears throat> You don't know until you really get into the midst of it and then new questions come up. So in thinking of, you know, things that have kept me up really late or for days on end and trying to solve, um, I remember looking at a early census and seeing my grandmother and my grandfather on the census but my mom wasn't there. And I'm, I, I'm doing the math and I'm thinking, okay, she'd been born. Um, why was she not there? And why were they in this different city? So they were in uh, Miami. And, and I'm scratching my head going, I have never heard any stories about them being in Miami and where was mom? What's going on? So I started doing some newspaper research to see, you know, text to context. What's the context? What was going on in America, in Florida, uh, in the 1920s? Well, it turns mm -hmm. out that there was this whole land grab thing going on and people were being lured into South Florida to buy cheap land and develop it. Well, you know what was happening when people were being lured into South Florida to buy cheap land and live there and to try to pump out the Everglades? You have to read with a journalistic eye. White people were being lured into South Florida. They needed cooks, maids, butlers, and a whole army of support people. And there's this whole other story that I discovered of African Americans moving from both the North and the South into Southern Florida because that's where the jobs were. That's where I found my grandparents. I look back into the northern Florida census at my grandmother's sister, and guess where? who's living with her? My mom. Mm -hmm. They left sure. her to go 
down for this, you know, great, let's pump the Everglades, you know, experience. Uh But they were a part of that army of black folks who moved down to Southern Florida in order to be the cooks and waiters and waitresses and, you know, domestics of the time. So it's stuff like that that just made me want to go even more because you're reading about your family's history, but you're also learning about the history of your community, of your country, of, you know, your part of the country and why they were doing the things they were doing. So that, that to me is what, what drove me. Um, the, the other thing, you know, I think you mentioned roadblocks. Um, one of the major roadblocks that I had to overcome was just that of literacy. I am, I am not the first generation, uh, college educated. My, my grandmother, um, went to, to college. Um, my ASJ worked to rebuild, um, Cookman Institute, which is now Bethune Cookman. Uh, he was a part of that whole educational scene back in the, the early, uh, 1900s. So our family's not been that, you know, removed from, from, um, that experience, but literacy was a major issue in my life. You learn to read, you learn to write, you learn to spell. When you start down this road of family uh, history research, throw literacy out the window because your ancestors did. They spelled phonetically. They spelled the best way they could. And if you're looking at certain records, say census records, it's not even the responsibility of the person being interviewed to get the spelling, the spellings often comes from what the enumerator hears. So mm-hmm. I have, um, to date, I think I have up to 11 spellings of my family name of Limbrick, mm. which yep. you think, wow, how in the world is it possible? But yes, it it gets written in cursive and it looks one way it gets printed it's another way phonetically sounded out it's something else um i have members of the same biological family brothers and sisters and they spell their last name differently it literacy is one of those big ones that i had to overcome and just say you know it is what it is do the research and make sure you still got the fa- the right family uh, and then move forward. Yeah. Kind of along the lines of like using terms uh, like different terms that were used for uh, race mm-hmm. at various points in history. And it's like, well, I'm not comfortable with that term today. <laughs> yes. But if you don't use that term in your search, you're not going to find what you're looking for. So um, yes. Yeah. Lots of lots of variables to consider, and that's important when you're talking to people face to face or or on the phone when you have to have a live uh, conversation. Um, I'm not sure if I I related the story in in the book or or not, but when you said that, Brenda, it reminded me of being on the phone with an archivist down in Florida, and I'm trying to find church records. Uh, on my my great grandfather, and this woman is doing her best trying to help me to to find the church and to find you know the the membership roles and all this, and we're coming up with nothing. And 
um, somewhere along the conversation, she detected or I said that he was um, an African-American. And you could hear the gas. And she just went, well, I need to be looking in the colored books. (laughs) And it's like, okay, so there were different books. Yes, you need to talk. We need to talk to the archivist for the colored church. And mm. and it's like wow, I just I forgot I was colored. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. There was the end of the book, especially had so much of that, just like things you would never think of. But once once you mention it, you're like, oh gosh, of course, of course, that would be the situation. You're like literacy. Oh yeah. Once you mention it, you're like, oh goodness, yes, that will. But you just would never think of it before. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, I got I got a couple. Just one of my last questions for you, Alonzo. Mm-hmm. I did a I did a review of your book on Goodreads, and in the review, I said this. Uh, this book is a practical treasure trove, opportunities for reflection, a call for us to consider and learn from racism in our past, the learning of where culture has come from and where it still needs to go. It's a guide for research. It's a, help, it's a helpful aid in listening to and honoring your family. It's a great record of... Uh, of the power of knowing your own story. For some of us, knowing our story is easier than for others. It was inspiring to read about the work that Alonzo was willing to do to uncover more of his own. Would that, would that portion of that review resonate with your intentions of, of this book or how, how does that strike you? Absolutely. And again, thank you so very much for that review. Um, you nailed, <laughs> you told me I nailed it, but you nailed it. That's, that's what I wanted to happen with this publication. Well, and it was, and, and, and all these things like wove into each other, but they also could stand on their own. Like there, there's so much about the, like the research tidbits or how to, and that has nothing to do with necessarily your family's backstory. Right. Uh, obviously it's super re- but this book was full of all kinds of stuff and, and stuff that could stand on its own, stuff that wove together for your situation, and it, it really it really surprised me. I was expecting, like, I was expecting one thing when you sent your book. I got mm-hmm. like five, six, seven, eight other things, and that was a beautiful, just wonderful surprise. Well, thank you, thank you very much. You know, I, I go back to the analogy I made before, earlier. Um, I was just a beggar who found food. Um, <laughs> yeah. This this whole process of discovering my grandfather was so life changing um, and built so much into me that I wanted other people to experience that. And the only way for others to to experience it is to have the tools to know. Well, how do I start? Where do I start? Uh, what do I look for? And and share you know my journey. So that's, um, this has been great. This has been a, a great journey. It's not over yet. There's more to come. I'm, I've already started on a, on another project. So, um, hopefully we'll, we'll get to talk about that later on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think maybe people are a little bit intimidated by, um, I mean, it certainly can consume your life digging mm-hmm. into this kind of stuff. Um, but I also think, like so many records are digitized now um, that were not easily accessible, especially if you live away from where your family is from. Um, you know, now you can just 
I mean, a personal example, a few years ago, I had an uncle who died and I knew that he was with a lady, um, when he died, but I didn't know if they were actually married or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't particularly close to my uncle. Um, and so I'm like 10, 15 minutes of searching and I was able to pull up his marriage record from Missouri, Mm -hmm. me being in Idaho. And not only did I find out that he was married, I found out that it was his third marriage, which was one more marriage than I knew about. Um, (laughs) so, I mean, you know, as you say, like every discovery leads to another question, Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can continue to follow that or not, but maybe give some encouragement for people who do want to, um, learn more, but just feel a little bit like, ah, there's too much, too much work. Yeah. Well, there, there's a whole lot of work and the problem is there's too much information. Um, there's, there's 101 free genealogical websites you can go to with someone telling you how to do this research. The record sources, um, not just talking to your family, but there's so many different types of records, of marriage records, of engagement records, of burials, of death certificates, of baptismal records. There's newspaper reports. It can be absolutely overwhelming. And one of the things that that I do with the book is I try to condense these things down into sort of bite-sized chunks that you can pick a series or uh, of of records and focus in on that and then see where you go. Stop, take a breather. Go to a different series of records and see what you can come up with. There's so much that you can do, like you just mentioned, Brent, online, but there's things still here in, in uh, you know, the, the 2000s that you have to actually go to the county clerk's office. You will have to go to the church and get the church records. So not everything can be done from the comfort of your living room, but that's just an excuse to pack up your family and take the kids on a road trip uh, and say, hey, let's go to this cemetery and let's take some pictures and, you know, turn it into an adventure. Um, The big thing that I always tell people is don't be intimidated by the volume of stuff that you will have to look at, but just start. Even baby steps are better than no steps. Um, Do something. Decide I'm going to, this month, I'm going to focus just on newspapers and I'm going to find everything I can about my family that's ever been reported on and go that route. Um, but just, just do baby steps. So you mentioned a moment ago, Alonzo, you had some stuff you were, you're were already working on some stuff. Like yes, you, you mentioned you got some things in the, what kind of juicy little <laughs> stuff can we be? anticipating here what can you tell us so so a couple things one thing that i'm working on right now is putting together an online course that will take anybody um from that state of just not knowing anything about their family their family history where their 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 origins in step by step guiding them through how to use all the tools that I mentioned in the book to an end point of being able to have that experience of wellness and, and self-esteem, uh, enlightenment and heightened 
uh, knowledge about their family. So I want to do that because I I know I can't keep doing this at the ma- the rate that I'm going. Um, I can only be in so many airports at a time. Uh, I can only speak to so many people face-to-face, one-to-one uh, at a time. So I'm working on, on building a, a course that will allow people to do this at their own speed. The, the other thing that I'm working on is a documentary film type series um, because I feel like something else has grown out of the book. When the book came out, it took about um, a month and a half or, or so, and I started getting contacted by other survivors. And what I mean by that, people who had experienced violent dyings in their family and I feel like I've I've sort of formed a little club here of us who have ancestors who were killed uh, due to racial violence, uh, due to gun violence, due to, you know, really horrible situations. And we have all chosen to deal with that loss, with that tragedy in some sort of artistic way. And I, I find that very interesting that out of our lament, out of our trauma, out of our sorrow, we're all trying to find the beauty uh, in that. So I'm looking oh goodness, at, yeah. yeah, looking at putting something together that shows weeping may endure for the night, but mm. there is joy mm. in the morning. Mm. And, and, yeah. and kind of guiding folks along that path of how to get from morning m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g to joy yeah absolutely love it all right brent take us home yeah alonzo um where where can people find you and uh get connected to you reach out um be a part of the work that you're doing gladly Uh, what, what kind of links can we include the easiest place to find me is i started a nonprofit called my roots foundation all one word, myrootsfoundation.com. And you can find me there um, in the upper left corner of that page. Brent, you will find the Do You Know scale. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you can reach me uh, there. There's an email link, uh, alonzo at myrootsfoundation.com. I have a personal email address of alonzo.felder at gmail.com. So be able to find me there. Um, go on to Amazon, buy my book, send me a message, put in a good review. That's Perfect. Those are the places. Love it. All right. Well, we will definitely have all of those links, um, the book, uh, the course, anything. I mean, even if those links aren't quite available yet, we'll get those in the show notes whenever they become available. Okay. And um, that'll all be at BayamontaSubShop.com. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. So thanks for joining us on the Bayamont Podcast. Alonzo, it's been an absolute pleasure um, yes. going on this journey. So Yeah, Alonzo, thank you for joining us today. It's been wonderful having you. Oh, thank you. My my privilege, my honor to, to be with you guys. You're doing a wonderful work, and you got to keep it up. All right. And to all of our listeners, we will talk to you again soon. Postscript.
So here I am the day before this episode will be published. And I just got an email. I just, I, I got an email from Alonzo a few days ago and he was commenting on Reed Dent's recent episode on the unforgiving servant. And he started quote, honestly, this lesson couldn't have come at a more inconvenient time, which it, to me is very funny. And I think our listeners probably know, um, because we typically record pretty far in advance. So Alonzo's episode was recorded two months ago. And I, I think maybe the funniest coincidence um, that that we've ever stumbled into was when we released episode 124 on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, contrasting it with Pilate's entrance that came out on the 4th of July of that year. I think most of you listening today Probably didn't hear that in real time and probably didn't realize that that was the day, but it's funny if you go back. So back to what Alonzo said, uh, quote, this lesson couldn't have come at a more inconvenient time as we mourn the killing of Tyree Nichols. Having a discussion about forgiveness is easy when there's not a horrible offense sitting in the room. When the horror is right in front of you, it can be more uncomfortable to entertain the idea of forgiveness. End quote. And I would say that uncomfortable is a very gracious word to use there. He went on um, to share how there are similarities between Tyree and his own son as far as their interests and their personalities. And he he takes the time to imagine on this very personal level what Tyree's parents are going through. Uh, but But he goes on, quote, My greatest takeaway from listening to your discussion on the unforgiving servant was your point of learning to see ourselves in the faces of offenders, to ask a better question, as Marty might say, instead of looking at the five perpetrators and asking, what's wrong with you? Ask a better question. What happened to you? In the moment, it's a hard question, but ultimately I have to lean into good theology and affirm that we were all created good and somehow have become twisted. End quote. So I just want to say that we aren't trying to say anything with this episode or Reed's episode on the unforgiving servant or any other episode. This was recorded weeks before Tyree Nichols was fatally beaten on the streets of Memphis. Reed's episode as well was days before the news broke. And why did we start with Reed's series on parables? Because Elle was having a baby and Josh was recovering from a liver transplant. There's no grand plan on our end of it. We aren't even smart enough to realize in December that we're recording an episode with a black man that will ultimately be released during Black History Month. Like, not just an episode with a black man, uh, an episode about a black man's history. Like, it's, we just, we just simply had the opportunity to read his book and we felt that it had value to our listeners for a variety of reasons. And there's no shortage of applications for these, these lessons. I'm afraid that the parable of the unforgiving servant will always be relevant. So the question is whether or not we're willing to step into the tension. So with that, I release you to wrestle with it. Thanks for listening. And I, I really mean that.